0: Section 7 of On Benefits This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Diana Vandervis On Benefits by Seneca Translated by Aubrey Stewart Book 3, Chapters 1 to 17 Chapter 1 Not to return gratitude for benefits, my abutius liberalis, is both base in itself and is thought base by all men. Wherefore, even ungrateful men complain of ingratitude, and yet what all condemn is at the same time rooted in all. And so far do men sometimes run into the other extreme that some of them become our bitterest enemies, not merely after receiving benefits from us, but because they have received them. I cannot deny that some do this out of sheer badness of nature, but more do so because lapse of time destroys the remembrance, for time gradually effaces what they felt vividly at the moment. I remember having had an argument with you about this class of persons, who you wish to call forgetful rather than ungrateful, as if that which caused a man to be ungrateful was any excuse for his being so or as if the fact of this happening to a man prevented his being ungrateful, when we know that it only happens to ungrateful men. There are many classes of the ungrateful, as there are of thieves or of homicides, who all have the same fault, though there is a great variety in its various forms. The man is ungrateful who denies that he has received a benefit, who pretends that he has not received it, who does not return it. The most ungrateful man of all is he who forgets it. The others, though they do not repay it, yet feel their debt and possess some traces of worth, though obstructed by their bad conscience. They may by some means and at some time be brought to show their gratitude. If for instance they be pricked by shame, if they conceive some noble ambition such as occasionally rises even in the breasts of the wicked, if some easy opportunity of doing so offers. But the man from whom all recollection of the benefit has passed away can never become grateful. Which of the two do you call worse? He who is ungrateful for kindness, or he who does not remember it? The eyes which fear to look at the light are diseased, but those which cannot see it are blind. It is filial impiety not to love one's parents, but not to recognize them is madness. Chapter 2 Who is so ungrateful as he who has completely laid aside and cast away that which ought to be in the forefront of his mind and ever before him that he knows it not? It is clear that if forgetfulness of a benefit steals over a man, he cannot have often thought about repaying it. In short, repayment requires gratitude, time, opportunity, and the help of fortune, whereas he who remembers a benefit is grateful for it, and that too without expenditure since gratitude demands neither labour wealth nor good fortune he who fails to render it has no excuse behind which to shelter himself for he who places a benefit so far away that it is out of sight never could have meant to be grateful for it just as those tools which are kept in use and are daily touched by the hand are never in danger of growing rusty while those which are not brought before our eyes and lie as if superfluous Not being required for common use, collect dirt by the mere lapse of time, so likewise that which our thoughts frequently turn over and renew never passes from our memory, which only loses those things to which it seldom directs its eyes. Chapter 3. Besides this, there are other causes which at times erase the greatest services from our minds. The first and most powerful of these is that, being always intent upon new objects of desire, we think not of what we have but of what we are striving to obtain those whose mind is fixed entirely upon what they hope to gain regard with contempt all that is their own already it follows that since men's eagerness for something new makes them undervalue whatever they have received they do not esteem those from whom they have received it as long as we are satisfied with the position we have gained we love our benefactor we look up to him and declare that we owe our position entirely to him. Then we begin to entertain other aspirations and hurry forward to attain them after the manner of human beings, who, when they have gained much, always covet more. Straightway all that we use to regard as benefits slip from our memory, and we no longer consider the advantages which we enjoy over others, but only the insolent prosperity of those who have outstripped us. Now no one can at the same time be both jealous and grateful, because those who are jealous are querulous and sad, while the grateful are joyous. In the next place, since none of us think of any time but the present, and but few turn back their thoughts to the past, it results that we forget our teachers, and all the benefits which we have obtained from them because we have altogether left our childhood behind us. Thus, all that was done for us in our youth perishes unremembered, because our youth itself is never reviewed. What has been is regarded by everyone not only as past, but as gone. And for the same reason our memory is weak for what is about to happen in the future. Chapter 4. Here I must do Epicurus the justice of saying that he constantly complains of our ingratitude for past benefits, Because we cannot bring back again, or count among our present pleasures, those good things which we have received long ago, although no pleasures can be more undeniable than those which cannot be taken from us. Present good is not yet altogether complete, some mischance may interrupt it. The future is in suspense and uncertain, but what is past is laid up in safety. How can any man feel gratitude for benefits if he skips through his whole life entirely engrossed with the present and the future? It is remembrance that makes men grateful, and the more men hope, the less they remember. Chapter 5 In the same way, my liberalis, as some things remain in our memory as soon as they are learned, while to know others it is not enough to have learned them, for our knowledge slips away from us unless it be kept up. I allude to geometry and astronomy, and such other sciences as are hard to remember because of their intricacy, so the greatest of some benefits prevents their being forgotten, while others, individually less, though many more in number, and bestowed at different times, pass from our minds, because, as I have stated above, we do not constantly think about them, and do not willingly recognize how much we owe to each of our benefactors. Listen to the words of those who ask for favours. There is not one of them who does not declare that his remembrance will be eternal, who does not vow himself your devoted servant and slave, or find, if he can, some even greater expression of humility with which to pledge himself. After a brief space of time, these same men avoid their former expressions, thinking them abject and scarcely befitting free-born men. Afterwards, they arrive at the same point to which, as I suppose, the worst and most ungrateful of men come, that is, they forget. So little does forgetfulness excuse ingratitude that even the remembrance of a benefit may leave us ungrateful. Chapter six. The question has been raised whether this most odious vice ought to go unpunished and whether the law commonly made use of in the schools by which we can proceed against a man for ingratitude ought to be adopted by the state also since all men agree that it is just why not you may say seeing that even cities cast in each other's teeth the services which they have performed to one another and demand from the children some returns for benefits conferred upon their fathers On the other hand, our ancestors, who were most admirable men, made demands upon their enemies alone, and both gave and lost their benefits with magnanimity. With the exception of Macedonia, no nation has ever established an action at law for ingratitude, and this is a strong argument against it being established, because all agree in blaming crime and homicide. Poisoning, parricide, and sacrilege are visited with different penalties in different countries, but everywhere with some penalty, whereas this most common vice is nowhere punished, though it is everywhere blamed. We do not acquit it, but as it would be most difficult to reckon accurately the penalty for so varying a matter, we condemn it only to be hated, and place it upon the list of those crimes which we refer for judgment to the gods. Chapter 7 Many arguments occur to me which prove this vice ought not to come under the action of the law. First of all, the best part of a benefit is lost if the benefit can be sued for at law, as in the case of a loan or of letting and hiring. Indeed, the finest part of a benefit is that we have given it without considering whether we shall lose it or not, that we have left all this to the free choice of him who receives it. If I call him before a judge, it begins to not be a benefit but alone. Next, though it is a most honorable thing to show gratitude, it ceases to be honorable if it be forced. For in that case, no one will praise a grateful man any more than he praises him who restores the money which was deposited in his keeping, or who pays what he borrowed without the intervention of a judge. We should therefore spoil the two finest things in human life, a grateful man and a beneficent man. For what is there admirable in one who does not give, but merely lends a benefit, or in one who repays it, not because he wishes, but because he is forced to do so? There is no credit in being grateful unless it is safe to be ungrateful. Besides this, all the courts would hardly be enough for the action of this one law. Who would not plead under it? Who would not be pleaded against? For everyone exalts his own merits, everyone magnifies even the smallest matters which he has bestowed upon another. Besides this, those things which form the subject of a judicial inquiry can be distinctly defined and cannot afford unlimited license to the judge. Wherefore, a good cause is in a better position if it is before a judge than before an arbitrator, because the words of the law tie down a judge and define certain limits beyond which he may not pass. Whereas the conscience of an arbitrator is free and not fettered by any rules, so that he can either give or take away, and can arrange his decision, not according to the precepts of law and justice, but just as his own kindly feeling or compassion may prompt him. An action for ingratitude would not bind a judge, but would place him in the position of an autocrat. It cannot be known what or how great a benefit is. All that would be really important would be how indulgently the judge might interpret it. No law defines an ungrateful person. Often, indeed, one who repays what he has received is ungrateful, and one who has not returned it is grateful. Even an unpracticed judge can give his vote upon some matters. For instance, when the thing to be determined is whether something has or has not been done, when a dispute is terminated by the parties giving written bonds, or when the casting up of accounts decides between the disputants. When, however, motives have to be guessed at, when matters upon which wisdom alone can decide are brought into court, they cannot be tried by a judge taken at random from the list of select judges. Footnote. See Smith's Dictionary of Greek and Roman Antiquities, S.V., whom property and the inheritance of an equestrian fortune. Footnote. 400,000. Sester says, has placed upon the roll. Chapter 8. Ingratitude, therefore, is not only matter unfit to be brought into court, but no judge could be found fit to try it. And this you will not be surprised at if you examine the difficulties of any one who should attempt to prosecute a man upon such a charge. One man may have given a large sum of money, but he is rich and would not feel it. Another man may have given it at the cost of his entire inheritance. The sum given is the same in each case, but the benefit conferred is not the same. Add another instance. Suppose that to redeem a debtor from slavery, one man paid money from his own private means, while another man paid the same sum but had to borrow it or beg for it, and allow himself to be laid under a great obligation to someone. Would you rank the man who so easily bestowed his benefit on an equality with him who was obliged to receive a benefit himself before he could bestow it? Some benefits are great, not because of their amount, but because of the time at which they are bestowed. It is a benefit to give an estate whose fertility can bring down the price of corn, and it is a benefit to give a loaf of bread in a time of famine. It is a benefit to give provinces through which flow vast navigable rivers, and it is a benefit When men are parched with thirst, and can scarcely draw breath through their dry throats, to show them a spring of water. Who will compare these cases with one another, or weigh one against the other? It is hard to give a decision, when it is not the thing given, but its meaning, which has to be considered. Though what is given is the same, yet if it be given under different circumstances, it has a different value. A man may have bestowed a benefit upon me, but unwillingly, He may have complained of having given it. He may have looked at me with greater haughtiness than he was wont to do. He may have been so slow in giving it that he would have done me a greater service if he had promptly refused it. How could a judge estimate the value of these things, when words, hesitation, or looks can destroy all their claims to gratitude? Chapter 9. What again could he do, seeing that some things are called benefits because they are unduly coveted, while others are not benefits at all, according to this common valuation, yet are of an even greater value, though not so showy? You call it a benefit to cause a man to be adopted as a member of a powerful city, to get him enrolled among the knights, or to defend one who is being tried for his life. What do you say of him who gives useful advice? Of him who holds you back when you would rush into crime? Of him who strikes the sword from the hands of the suicide? OF HIM WHO BY HIS POWER OF CONSOLATION BRINGS BACK TO THE DUTIES OF LIFE ONE WHO IS PLUNGED IN GRIEF AND EAGER TO FOLLOW THOSE WHOM HE HAS LOST, OF HIM WHO SITS AT THE BEDSIDE OF THE SICK MAN, AND WHO, WHEN HEALTH AND RECOVERY DEPEND UPON SEIZING THE RIGHT MOMENT, ADMINISTERS FOOD IN DUE SEASON, STIMULATES THE FAILING VEINS WITH WINE, OR CALLS IN THE PHYSICIAN TO THE DYING MAN. "'Who can estimate the value of such services as these? "'Who can bid us weigh dissimilar benefits one with another? "'I give you a house,' says one. "'Yes, but I forewarned you that your own house would come down upon your head. "'I gave you an estate,' says he. "'True, but I gave a plank to you when shipwrecked. "'I fought for you and received wounds for you,' says another. "'But I saved your life by keeping silence.' Since a benefit is both given and returned differently by different people, it is hard to make them balance. Chapter 10. Besides this, no day is appointed for repayment of a benefit, as there is for borrowed money. Consequently, he who has not yet repaid a benefit may do so hereafter. For tell me, pray, within what time a man is to be declared ungrateful? What greatest benefits cannot be provided by evidence? they often lurk in the silent consciousness of two men only. Are we to introduce the rule of not bestowing benefits without witnesses? Next, what punishment are we to appoint for the ungrateful? Is there to be only one for all, though the benefits which they have received are different? Or should the punishment be varying, greater or less according to the benefit which each has received? Are our valuations to be restricted to pecuniary fines, What are we to do, seeing that in some cases the benefit conferred is life, and things dearer than life? What punishment is to be assigned to ingratitude for these? One less than the benefit? That would be unjust. One equal to it? Death? What could be more inhumane than to cause benefits to result in cruelty? Chapter 11. It may be argued, parents have certain privileges— These are regarded as exempt from the action of ordinary rules, and so also ought to be the case with other beneficent persons. Nay, mankind has assigned a peculiar sanctity to the position of parents, because it was advantageous that children should be reared, and people had to be tempted into undergoing the toil of doing so, because the issue of their experiment was doubtful. One cannot say to them, as one does to others who bestow benefits, Choose the man to whom you give. You must only blame yourself if you are deceived. Help the deserving. In rearing children, nothing depends upon the judgment of those who rear them. It is a matter of hope. In order, therefore, that people may be willing to embark upon this lottery, it was right that they should be given a certain authority. And since it is useful for youth to be governed, we have placed their parents in a position of domestic magistrates, under whose guardianship their lives may be ruled moreover the position of parents differs from that of other benefactors for their having given formerly to their children does not stand in the way of their giving now and hereafter and also there is no fear of their falsely asserting that they have given with others one has to inquire not only whether they have received but whether they have given but the good deeds of parents are placed beyond doubt in the next place one benefit bestowed by parents is the same for all and might be counted once for all while the others which they bestow are of various kinds unlike one to another differing from one another by the widest possible intervals they can therefore come under no regular rule since it would be more just to leave them all unrewarded than to give the same reward to all chapter twelve some benefits cost much to the givers some are of much value to the receivers but cost the givers nothing Some are bestowed upon friends, others on strangers. Now, although that which is given be the same, yet it becomes more when it is given to one with whom you are beginning to be acquainted through the benefits which you have previously conferred upon him. One man may give us help, another distinctions, a third consolation. You may find one who thinks nothing pleasanter or more important than to have someone to save him from distress you may again find one who would rather be helped to great place than to security, while some consider themselves more indebted to those who save their lives than to those who save their honour. Each of these services will be held more or less important, according as the disposition of our judge inclines to one or the other of them. Besides this, I choose my creditors for myself, whereas I often receive benefits from those from whom I would not, and sometimes I am laid under an obligation without my knowledge. What will you do in such a case, when a man has received a benefit unknown to himself, and which had he known of it he would have refused to receive? Will you call him ungrateful if he does not repay it, however he may have received it? Suppose that someone has bestowed a benefit upon me, and that the same man has afterwards done me some wrong. Am I to be bound by his one bounty to endure with patience any wrong that he may do to me? Or will it be the same as if I had repaid it, because he himself has by the subsequent wrong cancelled his own benefit? How in that case would you decide which was the greater? The present which the man has received, or the injury which has been done him? Time would fail me if I attempted to discuss all the difficulties which would arise. Chapter 13 It may be argued that we render men less willing to confer benefits by not supporting the claim of those which have been bestowed to meet with gratitude, and by not punishing those who repudiate them. But would you find, on the other hand, that men would be far less willing to receive benefits if by so doing they were likely to incur the danger of having to plead their case in court, and having more difficulty in proving their integrity? This legislation would also render us less willing to give. For no one is willing to give to those who are unwilling to receive, but one who is urged to acts of kindness by his own good nature and by the beauty of charity will give all the more freely to those who need make no returns unless they choose. It impairs the credit of doing a service, if in doing it we are carefully protected from loss. CHAPTER Fourteen: Benefits, then, will be fewer but more genuine. Well, what harm is there in restricting people from giving recklessly? Even those who would have no legislation upon the subject follow this rule, that we ought to be somewhat careful in giving and in choosing those upon whom we bestow favors. Reflect over and over again to whom you are giving. You will have no remedy at law, no means of enforcing repayment. You are mistaken if you suppose that the judge will assist you. No law will make full restitution to you, you must look only to the honour of the receiver. Thus only can benefits retain their influence, and thus only are they admirable. You dishonour them if you make them the grounds of litigation. Pay what you owe is a most just proverb, and one which carries with it the sanction of all nations. But in dealing with benefits it is most shameful. Pay. How is a man to pay who owes his life, his position, his safety, or his reason to another? None of the greatest benefits can be repaid. Yet, it is said, you ought to give in return for them something of equal value. This is just what I have been saying that the grandeur of the act is ruined if we make our benefits commercial transactions. We ought not to encourage ourselves in avarice, in discontent, or in quarrels. The human mind is prone enough to these by nature. As far as we are able, let us check it and cut off the opportunities for which it seeks. Chapter 15. Would that we could indeed persuade men to receive back money which they have lent from those debtors only who are willing to pay. Would that no agreement ever bound the buyer to the seller, and that their interests were not protected by sealed covenants and agreements, but rather by honour and a sense of justice. However, men prefer what is needful to what is truly best, and choose rather to force their creditors to keep faith with them than to trust that they will do so. Witnesses are called on both sides, the one by calling in brokers, making several names appear in his accounts as his debtors instead of one. The other is not content with the legal forms of question and answers unless he holds the other party by the hand. What a shameful admission of the dishonesty and wickedness of mankind! Men trust more to our signet rings than to our intentions. For what are these respectable men summoned? For what do they impress their seals? It is an order that the borrower may not deny that he has received what he has received. You regard these men, I suppose, as above bribes, as maintainers of the truth. Well, these men will not be entrusted with money except on the same terms. Would it not, then, be more honourable to be deceived by some than to suspect all men of dishonesty? To fill up the measure of avarice one thing only is lacking, that we should bestow no benefit without a surety. To help, to be of service, is the part of a generous and noble mind. He who gives acts like a god. He who demands repayment acts like a money lender. Why then, by trying to protect the rights of the former class, should we reduce them to the level of the basest of mankind? Chapter 16 More men, our opponent argues, will be ungrateful if no legal remedy exists against ingratitude. Nay, fewer, because then benefits will be bestowed with more discrimination. In the next place, it is not advisable that it should be publicly known how many ungrateful men there are, for the number of sinners will do away with the disgrace of the sin, and a reproach which applies to all men will cease to be dishonorable. Is any woman ashamed of being divorced? Now that some noble ladies reckon the years of their lives, not by the number of the consuls, but by that of their husbands, now that they leave their homes in order to marry others, and marry only in order to be divorced? Divorce was only dreaded as long as it was unusual. Now that no gazette appears without it, women learn to do what they hear so much about. Can anyone feel ashamed of adultery? Now that things have come to such a pass that no woman keeps a husband at all unless it be to pique her lover? Chastity merely implies ugliness. Where will you find any woman so abject, so repulsive, as to be satisfied with a single pair of lovers, without having a different one for each hour of the day? Nor is the day long enough for all of them unless she has taken her airing in the grounds of one and passes the night with another. A woman is frumpish and old-fashioned if she does not know that adultery with one paramour is nicknamed marriage, just as all shame at these vices has disappeared since the vice itself became so widely spread. So, if you make the ungrateful begin to count their own numbers, you would both make them more numerous, and enable them to be ungrateful with greater imputiny. Chapter 17 What then, shall ungrateful men go unpunished? What then, I answer, shall we punish the undutiful, the malicious, the avaricious, the headstrong and the cruel? Do you imagine that those things which are loathed are not punished, or do you suppose that any punishment is greater than the hate of all men? It is a punishment not to dare receive a benefit from anyone, not to dare to bestow one, or to be, or to fancy that you are a mark for all men's eyes, and to lose all appreciation of so excellent and pleasant a matter. Do you call a man unhappy who has lost his sight, or whose hearing has been impaired by disease? And do you not call him wretched who has also lost the power of feeling benefits? He fears the gods, the witnesses of all ingratitude. He is tortured by the thought of the benefit which he has misapplied, and in fine he is sufficiently punished by this great penalty, that, as I said before, he cannot enjoy the fruits of this most delightful act. On the other hand, He who takes pleasure in receiving a benefit enjoys an unvarying and continuous happiness, which he derives from consideration, not of the things given, but of the intention of the giver. A benefit gives perpetual joy to a grateful man, but pleases an ungrateful one only for a moment. Can the lives of such men be compared, seeing that the one is sad and gloomy, as it is natural that a denier of his debts and a defrauder should be? a man who does not give his parents his nurses or his teachers the honour which is their due while the other is joyous cheerful on the watch for an opportunity of proving his gratitude and gaining much pleasure from this frame of mind itself such a man has no wish to become bankrupt but only to make the fullest and most copious return for benefits and that not only to parents and friends but also to more humble persons For even if he receives a benefit from his own slave, he does not consider from whom he receives it, but what he receives. End of Section 7. Recording by Diana Vandervis, Winnipeg, Canada.